Friends, where do we go after we die and before the judgment day? Do we just sleep in some kind of unconscious state? Are we, do we face annihilation to be recreated from the cells all the way up again? Or, or do we live in an intermediate state? Do we go straight to our eternal destiny? Well, each one of these questions are considered by some people as being taught in the scriptures. But which one is correct? What does the Bible say? And it requires deep study. So friends, let's, let's ask the question this day. Where are the dead? What does the Bible say about it? We don't want to listen to all these spiritualists with their incantations and their occultic tripods and spells and smells and bells and whistles and things like that. We just need to go to the Word of God. I think most people are interested in any question that relates to the afterlife. So we'd like to know, if possible, where do we go immediately after we die? And we'd like to know rather if if our friends or our relatives who have crossed over, if they're conscious, do they look in upon us? Do they see what we're doing? Now, some of these questions we just cannot answer. There's nothing revealed in God's word that will answer all the questions we have about death and what happens after we die. And for some reason, known only to him, our heavenly father has closed the door on such things. So we need to accept that. And not speculate about it, because that's all it is. It's just speculation. It's just guessing. And that's just not good enough. Guessing is not the standard of God's word, nor of those that study it. So since everything is in his hands, and everything which he does is for our own good while we live in this life, we must accept that and just, just turn to the Bible and see what it reveals about the afterlife. Because there are glimpses there. There's an instance in the Bible about a man who died and who remained in the grave until the fourth day. When the Lord Jesus visited, he spoke the word and he restored life to him, to his decaying body. And he lived again, much to everybody's shock. Now, I'm sure he was the object of interest to the people of that day. They came so far to see him. They came as far to see him as they would to have seen the Lord, who had, who had raised this man from the dead. This man was dead. What did he know? And so great was the interest he caused that even the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ suggested that he should be put out of the way, get rid of him, because he was a living argument in favour of the divine power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And can you imagine those people who came to see Lazarus and how they crowded around him with questions about where he was while he was dead? And what did he say and what did he hear? What was, what was it like up there or down there or wherever he was? Now, there's not the slightest mention in the Bible that they asked these questions, but I'm sure they did. And I have a belief on, on, I base that belief on simple human nature because I would have asked him questions like that, wouldn't you? I would have driven him crazy and just said, George, go away from me, leave me alone. You'll find out when you die. Just, just go. <laughs> I was driving him crazy. And I'm sure you would have too. But did he answer those questions? What did he say? Well, if he did, why didn't the inspired writers of the gospel give us the answer? You know, not only do I think that the people that were gathered around him asked questions like that, but I can imagine when he was finally alone in his little house in Bethany, that his sisters Mary and Martha asked him the exact same questions. Can't you just hear him saying things like, Brother, where were you after you died? What was it like? Did you know how sad we were when you weren't here? Did you know how much we missed you? 
Did you see the funeral and all the people who were there? Did you see Jesus come and raise you? What do you know? How did you feel and, and what did you see? Where did you go? Tell us about it. I'm sure they asked him those questions. And yet there's not one single mention in scripture. And there's got to be a reason for that. And so, of course, we don't have any answers to those questions. There are some things which it is not for us to know. Now, why is it that those questions aren't recorded? Well, I think Lazarus didn't answer these questions because he couldn't. I have an idea that the curtain had been closed on what had taken place and Lazarus simply had no memory of it after he returned to his body. And I base this on Paul's statement that when he was caught up into the third heaven, he heard things that were unlawful to be uttered. And if it was unlawful for Paul to usher the things that he heard in the spirit world, it must also have been unlawful for Lazarus to reveal what he saw and heard while he was out of his body. So then, if it's God's will to keep some things away from us, then we need to be satisfied with that. And as in all things, say, thy will be done, Matthew 6, verse 10. But if anything is revealed in the Bible concerning our questions, then it's ours to investigate. And we have a right to know it and to enjoy whatever blessing and information the Bible may give us. And so for this morning's study, this afternoon's study, we're going to examine these scriptures to see if we can find the answer to the question, where are the dead? So where are they? Some people claim that they're simply not. In other words, they have ceased to be because man is totally mortal and when he dies, he simply ceases to exist. And that view is held not only by unbelievers, but some religious people as well. It's a very strange thing. But you know, I don't believe this theory. I believe a person possesses an element of his being called a soul. And that lives, that soul, that spirit lives independently of the physical body. And at death, the soul or spirit departs from the body. And as a consequence, the body decays while the spirit lives on. In the Bible, it describes the death of the body as sleep, but the spirit's not asleep. The spirit lives on. Those who hold to the no-soul doctrine make a play on the word death and say that if the spirit lives after death, then the person isn't really dead. But they don't understand the meaning of death according to the Bible. They think it means extinction. But that's not the meaning of the word according to the scriptures and according to the lexicons, the ancient Greek and Hebrew. The word death actually means a separation and the end of a state or a condition. So someone can be dead in one sense and alive in another. Their body is dead, but their spirit is still alive. Their spirit lives on. Many people deny the existence of the soul or the spirit, but that's not what the scripture says. When one state or condition comes to an end, that is death. The Apostle Paul said in the 7th chapter of Romans, 7 verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, and when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Now that doesn't mean he became extinct, he ceased to be. It means simply that he ceased to be ignorant of sin. He had not formally known sin, but the law revealed the fact that he was a sinner. Again, Paul said in Colossians 3 and verse 3, Ye are dead, and your life. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Here we have people who were living active Christians. And yet Paul said that they were dead. 
and they were dead to sin, but that didn't mean that they didn't exist. It means that they were dead to the world as well, and to the things, to all the things which are sinful. And they were alive unto God. Again he said in 1 Timothy 5, 6, concerning a young widow who loved pleasure, and therefore deserted the Lord, that she is dead while she liveth. So here we have a living person who was dead at the same time, living in one sense, but dead in another. In this case, she was dead unto God and alive unto sin. She had become separated from God because of her sin. So when physical death comes, it simply means that the spirit departs from the body and that our earthly existence is at an end. There's no longer life in the flesh or the body. And a few passages of scripture will prove beyond a doubt that this is so. But before we look at those passages, I think it would be well, we would do well if we consider the meaning of the word soul. The soul sleepers or annihilationists claim that the soul dies. And they quote scriptures like the soul that sleepeth, it shall die. But this is a different use of the word soul. Here it simply means individuals. The person that sins shall die. Not anyone else for him, but for himself. The father shall not bear the iniquity for the son, the scripture tells us. Not the son, the iniquity of the father, but the soul that sinneth shall die. Many times in the Bible, the word, the word soul is used that way. We read that eight souls were saved in the ark, meaning eight individuals, their persons, their lives. We read about three score and fifteen souls, meaning, of course, three score and fifteen persons. The word that's used most of the time in Scripture to designate the immortal part of the person is not soul, but spirit. The word soul is sometimes used to designate the, Im the immortal part of a person, but not nearly as often as the word spirit. Remember, when reading Scripture, context is king. But whatever word is used, the Bible tells us that there is beyond question such a thing as a person living apart from his body. The first reference that I want to give as proof is found in Genesis chapter 35. This is where we have the account of the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. In the 18th verse it says, And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoi, but his father called him Benjamin. Her death simply meant a departing of the spirit. Her spirit was departing and the writer puts into parenthesis that statement that she died. Again, we find in 1 Kings chapter 17, the account of the death of the widow's son and the restoring of the life through the prophet Elijah. In the 21st verse, we have Elijah crying unto the Lord saying, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come back into him again. Then the soul came back into the boy's body and he lived again. Over in the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes, we have a picture of old age and death. And in the 7th verse, the wise man said, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Here the body which was made out of dust returns to the dust, but the spirit which did not come from the dust but came from God himself goes back to him. Quite different. Then when we go to the New Testament, we find the same expressions. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, while Jesus was on the cross, he said to the penitent thief, Verily I say unto thee, 
Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Jesus and the thief both died that day, but according to what the Lord said, they both went to some place called paradise. Then in verse 46, our Lord cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Then we're told he gave up the ghost, the spirit, and his body was lifeless. There was something in Jesus that departed and went into the hands of the Father, while the body was taken down from the cross and buried in the tomb. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 59, we have the account of the death of Stephen. And when he died, he cried, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen's spirit was being forced from his body by the stones being hurled at him by that terrible mob. But that spirit went into the hands of Jesus while the body was left lifeless in the dirt. And then we go over to the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, where in verse 16, Paul said, Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Here man is looked upon as having two sides to his nature. And while one is going down, so to speak, the other is going up. One is falling, and the other is making, taking on a new life and strength. Then the thought continues into the next chapter, over in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, where it says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So the Apostle Paul considers, he considers the body a house, and says that even though this house tumbles down and dissolves, even though it's destroyed, we have another house. This shows that the real living thinking being isn't dependent upon the house in which we live. The person we are is the spirit that dwells within the body we occupy. It can change houses. Then he says in verses 6 and 8, that while we're home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. But to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. This shows that the house he's been talking about refers to the body, and according to Paul's teaching, a person may be absent from the body and still be a living, conscious being with the Lord, even at home with the Lord. Now, how in the world can someone say that man is wholly mortal and believe this passage of Scripture? What can he do with it? Then again, Paul said in, first chapter, in the first chapter of Philippians that he was in a strait betwixt the two, not knowing whether to depart and be with the Lord or remain and be with Christians on the earth. He said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, verse 21. So Paul considered death as a departing from something and going to join something else, something better, departing from the earth and his friends here on the earth, from his body and to joining with the Lord somewhere in the spirit realm. It was better for him. In Hebrews 12 and verse 9 he said, uh, the Hebrews writer said, pardon me, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we have, and we, and we give them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? Here we have the clearly the clear biblical teaching of the dividing of the human being into flesh and spirit. And then the writer declares that the flesh came from one source 
and the Spirit came from another. Now if somebody asks you where the Spirit comes from and when it enters into the body, simply tell them that the answer is found in the 12th chapter of Zechariah, which says that the Lord formed the Spirit of man, verse 1. Now when that happens, that is, how long before birth, we don't know. But it really doesn't matter because God didn't tell us. But if the Spirit lives after death, then we ask the question, where does the Spirit go when a person dies? A lot of people say that it goes immediately to its eternal destiny. If it's a righteous spirit, it goes immediately to heaven. And if it's a wicked spirit, it goes immediately to hell. But that's not what the scriptures teach us when we look into it. I believe the scriptures teach that the spirit goes to an intermediate state and remains there until judgment. Now, why do I say that? Well, the first reason being that the Bible teaches that there's going to be a great general judgment day when everyone will be judged and given their rewards. If people are judged immediately after they die, then there wouldn't be a need for a final judgment, would there? So is there going to be a final judgment? Well, yes, indeed. The scriptures are very emphatic about that point. And it's even one of the first principles of the gospel of Christ. The Bible in no uncertain terms teaches that that day is coming. In John 16, verse 8, the Lord Jesus said, And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And when Paul reasoned before Felix and Drusilla, he talked about righteousness, temperance and the judgment to come. Future tense to come. Then when he stood in the great city of Athens, preaching to those heathen philosophers, he told them that God had appointed a day in which he would judge the world. They would be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God had raised from the dead. In discussing the first principles of the gospel, the sixth chapter of Hebrews and verse 2 refers to eternal judgment. Oh yes, there's going to be a thing, of this, it's, it is a thing that there's a great day coming, it's happening. Why? Well, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Just as Matthew 25, 20, 31 and 32 says, The Son of Man shall sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them from one another, one from another, as a shepherd divided his sheep from the goats. Now somebody might say this simply means the Lord will gather the nations living at the time of his coming, and then he'll separate them. But that doesn't prove that those who have died won't be judged the minute they died. So let's take a look at Matthew twelve forty one, when Jesus said, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment in, with this generation, the generation of Christ, and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh had lived almost 500 years before that time. And yet Jesus said that those two generations would be in the same judgment. Then he said the queen of the south, meaning the queen of Sheba, that she would rise up in the judgment with, the, the, with this generation, the generation that Christ came, and shall condemn it. And that was over a thousand years before the incarnation of our Lord. He said both would stand together in the same judgment. And the Lord also declared 
that it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for, for, but, than for those cities where he had preached and performed miracles which had rejected him. This shows that the generation of people who lived during the days of Jesus will be in the same judgment as the people who lived at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, at the time of Jonah the prophet and his visit to Nineveh, at the time of the Queen of Sheba. And these are just a few examples of the fact that there is indeed a great judgment day coming in which all will be judged from all the times together, from the day it happens all the way back to the beginning of time. So I think it's very clear that people will not be judged immediately after they die. Peter said that God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be perished. That alone settles the question as to whether or not the wicked will be judged immediately after they die. Is the same true of righteous people? I think so. I believe the righteous will also go into an intermediate state and remain there until judgment day, at which time they'll receive their crowns. After all, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So he connects his return to their entrance into the place prepared for them. Plus, Acts 2, Acts 2 verse 34 makes this interesting statement. David has not ascended into the heavens. King David was a righteous man. Yes, he had sinned, but he got right with God. He repented of his sin. And he had been dead for hundreds of years, at this time almost a thousand years. But even though he was dead for almost a thousand years, David was not in heaven. There are other passages that refer to the fact that people do not go to their eternal destination, either heaven or hell, right after they die. But I think these would be enough for now. And the next question, where did the dead go from death to the judgment? Well, imagine, if you will, a blackboard with a large circle on it, which we'll call Shoal or Hades. Shoal is a Hebrew word and Hades is a Greek word. They both mean the same thing. Hades or Shoal is the unseen world, is the spirit world, the world of the dead. In other words, that, that world where all go after they die. But it includes two different departments, two different areas. Everyone that dies goes to Sheol or Hades, not hell, Sheol. But the righteous go into one division and the wicked into another. But they're all in the same place while awaiting judgment. And a great gulf rolls through the centre of our circle. On one side is a department called Paradise. And on the other side is a place called Tartarus. Tartarus is the place where the wicked are held until the judgment day. That word is found only one time in the Holy Bible, over in Second Peter verse 4, where it says that God cast the angels who sinned down to Tartarus. Now, if we look up the meaning of the word Tartarus, we'll find that it means an abyss, an, or a dungeon, a prison house. It is not, it is not the word that, that is used for a place the wicked go after judgment. That word is Gehenna, or as we know it in English, hell. So knowing this, we should understand that the wicked are held in Tartarus until the day of judgment. 
Then we come to the division of Sheol called Paradise. Jesus and the thief went into a place called Paradise that day. The day that they died. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, we read in John 20 verse 17 that he told Mary, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. He was in Sheol, also known as Hades, not hell. There is a difference. Three days ago, he went to paradise. And yet he tells Mary that he has not ascended unto the Father. Therefore, paradise is not the place where the Father is. Now, the word paradise does not, does sometimes designate heaven. Paul called the third heaven paradise, but the word paradise is an ancient Persian word. And it wasn't translated into Greek. It was simply transliterated. So that wasn't translated from Greek into English. It was simply anglicized. We actually have a Persian word designating the place where the righteous go after death. And that word means a pleasure garden. A pleasure garden, a, a kind of Eden. And so any place of pleasure or a pleasure garden might be called paradise. But just because this word is sometimes applied to heaven is no reason that it could never be applied to anything else. Or that it always means heaven. Heaven is also called a city. But I can't imagine that anyone would think of heaven every time he sees the word city. And then we come to that great gulf, which of course is taken from the account of the rich man and Lazarus. The great gulf separated Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, which is just another way of describing the place where the righteous go. Now if you die and you wake up in paradise, you know that when judgment day comes, you're going to be awaiting your crown. You're not going to be sent to paradise only to be chucked into hell. And you're not going to be sent to Tartarus only to be finding yourself in heaven when you thought you were going to the other place. It didn't quite work like that. When we talk of paradise, it's a figure of speech designating the place we've been talking about, this beautiful place. So the rich are Abraham's bosom. The rich man was over in Tartarus. And I realised that the rich man was being tormented. And that we're told he was tormented in flames. Yes, the rich man was by no means happy. And I'm sure no one in Tartarus is happy. The rich man was not in hell. He was in Hades, in Sheol. The division of Hades he was in was Tartarus. Because of all this happened before the general judgment day. And we know that because his brothers were still back on earth and still had time to avoid the terrible price if they would just listen to Moses and the prophets. Also, there was no passing from where the rich man was and where Lazarus was. The rich man's opportunities were all gone. There was no time, no second chance after death. His doom was sealed. And this is true of everyone who is either in Tartarus or Gehenna in hell. But somebody will say, what's the use of having a judgment day? Haven't these souls already been judged and separated and their sentences irreversible? It's fixed. Well, yes, that's true. Nevertheless, this is the plan. This is the plain teaching according to God's word. And why God has arranged it this way, we just don't know. It's just sufficient for us to know that this is what he's done. But if I were to guess at a reason, it might be this. These souls have truly been separated and have been sent to a place from which they cannot escape. At least they can't escape to a better place. Their sentence has been pronounced. 
But you might say, they've been sent away to await a day of execution. Well, likewise, the righteous know they are going to enter into the place of God. That they will receive their crowns. But these crowns won't be given to them until the great day of judgment, as we've already seen. They will go in together. But someone may be thinking, don't the Catholics teach the same doctrine? Well, no, not exactly. They teach that souls do go into an intermediate state. They teach that souls go to a place called purgatory. Purgatory is the word, as the word indicates, means a place where souls are cleansed and purged from their sins. Which is completely unbiblical. So the Catholics teach, the Roman Catholics teach, that those who go to purgatory will be admitted into paradise or heaven after they have been cleansed by purgatorial fires or the correct monetary donation has been given. There you see the, the crux of the doctrine. Thus they teach that there is a chance after death for those who die in sin to escape eternal punishment. And that's certainly not the teaching of scriptures. For Jesus said in John chapter 8, 20, 21 and 22, For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And in connection to this he said, Whither I go ye cannot come. This shows that those who die in their sins are hopelessly cut off from the presence of God. Again, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give unto thee a crown of life. Not be thou faithful unto the second death, or until you're thrown into purgatory, where your relatives can give the correct amount of money to get you out of purgatory. That's not what the Bible says. Here again we see that our eternal reward is based upon our condition the condition of our spirits when we die. Are we right with God when we pass from this life to the next? And one more passage should settle the matter concerning the falseness of purgatory. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in this body, in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That shows that we're going to be judged for the things done in the body and recorded and rewarded accordingly. What the soul may do after it's left the body has nothing to do with it. It's while we're still living in the body that we have the opportunity of getting ready for the judgment. It's while we're living here on earth that we must decide where we're going to live throughout eternity. It is a limited time deal. And it's limited to the amount of life that you have left to live. This shows, my friends, that when death comes, your day of prob probation has ended. Your doom will then be sealed, or your reward. And if you are found in your sins, you must go away from the presence of God into the place of torment. And that is where you will be for all eternity. So while you're living in this world, while you have the use of your mind and while you have the opportunity, why not obey the commands of our loving Saviour? Why not settle the question of where you're going to be after you die? By turning away from sin and entering unto the Lord. Be saved by the power of his blood, by being baptised for the remission of your sins, so you can be forgiven of your sins. And then be kept by his grace as long as you walk in the light. If you do that, and when you die, you will enter paradise come judgment day. You shall pass into the presence of God and you will find rest and joy forever and ever. You need to settle this question today. Whom will you serve? 
Will you be found to be in Christ? According to the, Galatians, according to the letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 27. Or will you wait until the light of your life goes out? And there's no second chance. Not after you die. The Bible tells us that when we die, we're with Christ. Don't you want to be with him for all eternity? If you're not a Christian this day, get right with God. Stop being afraid of where you're going to be after you die because you know where you'll be if you obey the scriptures and surrender all to him. We are here for you as we sing a song of invitation. God bless you.